Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning to you, Nachum, and to everyone. Good Arab Shabbos. Good Arab Shabbos HaGadol. This will be our last um, uh, weekly update for a couple of weeks, so there's a lot to speak about and a lot that's been going on. First, why don't you update us regarding what happened yesterday in the center of Tel Aviv and the bigger picture, of course. It seems that the, uh, I mean, I don't want to blame Ramadan, frankly. I think it's a convenient excuse, but it seems that the enemy recently has really stepped things up and our people, our brothers and sisters in Israel, are suffering because of it. What's the latest in terms of what happened yesterday? So first of all, on the overall principle, you're right. Um, and there was a lot of hype before about uh, Ramadan being a uh, time of violence as if somehow that makes it okay or anticipated. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in Israel about did they prepare properly and having known that uh, with Pesach, Easter, and uh, Ramadan coming at the same time, that there would be a likelihood, likely uh, escalation, which we're seeing it started in Yerushalayim, uh, at the Damascus Gate, and there the police, I think, did handle it, uh, try to contain it. Uh, it. The fact is that it's not widespread. It's not a repetition of what happened last May, although that obviously can always get triggered. Uh, it's clear that they don't want the Hamas doesn't it's not looking for retaliation in Gaza for the acts that, that people from Gaza are carrying out. Uh, there is some evidence of ISIS involvement or inspiration for some of those uh, who've been involved, we don't know yet about the killer yesterday. Uh, the the two young men who were killed, both 27-year-olds, good friends. When you see the picture, it's it's truly heartbreaking, but as is every one of the losses of innocent people just going about their daily lives. And and there's no way to prevent all of it. And the, the A lot of questions are being asked about the holes in the fence and the, and the ability of people to come through, but they want the workers also, on the other hand. So it's a, it's a difficult and complex situation, and people looking for simplistic answers are not going to find it here. There has to be a crackdown. There has to be a clear message. And as you know, they're, they're doing demolitions. They're doing other things in the hope that that would stem uh, uh, the violence. The uh, incident yesterday was particularly egregious coming into a crowded area, uh, and especially on a Thursday night when the Restaurants and bars in that area are packed as they were, and the um, the toll could have been even uh, higher. Uh, some of those who were wounded are, are in serious condition. But we, we've seen this steady increase in the number of uh, of incidents. Uh, whether Iran is trying to to incite, or others are engaging in incitement, uh, we, there's no clear evidence, but there's clear uh, evidence of Iran's increased involvement in terrorist attacks, a 400% increase between 2019 and 2020 um, by Iran-backed groups, meaning Iran, uh, in the region and the, um, you know, over the period before from 2012 to 2018. For instance, there were no attacks on U.S. service people uh, or U.S. uh, facilities in Iraq, and yet now we've seen an increase. So generally, we're seeing an increase in violence and in, in incidents, and it's um, the government is uh, obviously under tremendous pressure internally and externally for it. 
Um, and we should mention, uh, I mean, you alluded to it because uh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks in terms of this whole thing. Beersheva, B'nai Barak, you mentioned Yerushalayim, and obviously now Dizengoff in Tel Aviv. You know, one of the things we've always spoken about is, and, and you and you stress this, and, um, and, and, and they deserve all the credit in the world, is that Israeli security forces and intelligence prevent so many episodes on a regular basis and this is something that you always stress and uh it's very easy to believe about the israeli security forces and intelligence frankly is is this is this to a point where the enemy when it comes to a concerted effort like this just becomes more creative or they infiltrate differently or there's so many attempts that they can't possibly that israeli intelligence security can't possibly stop all of them does any of that explain why there's a spike like this at this time well, there are a lot of uh, factors, but you're, you're right that they prevented at least 15 other attacks, maybe more, uh, that they acknowledge. Uh, they, uh, and that, of course, an incident that doesn't take place, nobody then speaks about it, and nobody congratulates them for, for having prevented it. Uh, the degree to which their intelligence services work inside the areas, the fact that they prevented catch guys involved in, a, in developing a bomb in their basement is really remarkable and it's why you need on the ground surveillance, why people say you can do this by satellite, you can do by other things it is not the same as when you actually control the area and have access uh, to both in, to human intelligence and to uh, on-site inspections and, and uh, surveillance the, so the number of incidents that are prevented is, is obviously very high but you know, the fence itself, now the argument is, why Why isn't it sealed? Why isn't it completely sealed? Uh, that, too, you can't hermetically seal a country. You can do more to make sure that these um, the holes in the fences, which are well known, uh, are, are closed. But it's not, there's no way, and there's no country in the world that can uh, totally prevent people from getting in or getting out. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, years ago, of course... Um, uh, listeners who remember when when incidents like this were commonplace uh, in Israel, it would deter uh, people from traveling to Israel, and it would certainly uh, encourage people to cancel their plans. Now, I know it's a week before Pesach. Can I assume that you haven't heard any type of panic among people from outside of Israel about traveling to Israel this week? I would say I've heard concern, and... um but I've not heard of uh, the munition. I know the hotels and the airlines are, are full. The um, hotels, a major problem is getting enough staff, they, that, especially in Tel Aviv and other areas that, where uh, in Jerusalem they hire Arabs and uh, others who come to work. But the, I know that there are hotels that are not able to take the, um, the full load for Pesach that they would normally have and for which there is a demand because they don't have the staff to service all of them. Wow. All right, so the next point, of course, and I'm sure this is why a lot of people have tuned in this morning, is to hear the latest regarding the Israeli government. Uh, A lot of people are actually linking um, all these uh, terrorist attacks to the possible uh, uh, fall of the Israeli government. Uh, So we know that that a member of Knesset um, uh, has switched parties, and that now uh, that puts the current government in danger. Uh, But I have read that it may not necessarily lead to the fall of the current Israeli government. What could you tell us is the latest regarding Naftali Bennett and his potential continuation of leadership? 
So the the balance between remember this is an eight party coalition ruling right. Israel right now, and every one of them leveraged their position, including Ram and the, the others, you know, to to get what they want in the particular concerns that they've expressed. And in this case, it was over an issue which I think is a disturbing issue about mandating comments uh, in in the hospitals and in the army, et cetera. They. Um, but if not this, it would have been something else. And now you see that other members are starting to put forward their demands. Uh, what demands the parties put forward is generally not known publicly, except when the agreements are, are published. So th- this is a, a, a jockeying for position and for protecting particular interests and agendas, which goes when you have a narrow uh, party. And now the prime minister's party, the Amina party, which won seven seats, in the election is down to five uh, people in the in the Knesset, which is 120 seats, and you need a majority. So till now, it was they had 61 seats uh, supporting the the government. So if a non-confidence vote came up, they would, could count on the 61 votes. For, if for nothing else, then it's their own self-interest. Now it's 60-60, and if one more person defects, meaning uh, the others, they can switch to a party. They can switch to non-party. You don't. You can leave the government, uh, but you don't have to leave the Knesset. It's a strange system, but the, as as you know, it's very complicated and strange in many respects. Then it becomes if they think they've then if they're down to fifty-nine, then the opposition can move with a no-confidence vote, and if they can mobilize the sixty-one votes necessary to to to, be, to uh, bring this government down. The members of the government don't want it because all of them know they're going to face a very tough election. Most are not going to do that well. Um, and particularly uh, Prime Minister Bennett's uh, party is not even expected to hit the, ma- the mandated number to, to be included, although that obviously can change. And and people like the stability. They don't like going to elections. They're very divisive. They're expensive. And uh, But I think that many people feel it's inevitable at some point um, that they will. So you, you now the Knesset is out of session and till after Pesach and they will, uh, when they reconvene, then you'll see what the possibility, and of course this interim period will be a period of immense pressure, counter-pressures. Um, they'll try to come up with a creative uh, way to, before the opening of the summer session, I think it's May 7th, uh, when the Knesset then uh, will reconvene. If it does, well, then under the agreement, I think Lapid becomes the uh, head of the government, and uh, and that too is uh, becomes subject to jockeying by the different parties about the government headed by Lapid. So we will have to see what uh, what happens. But it's when it starts to fray at the fringes like this. It usually doesn't stop. So the government can last with sixty. Right, they lose the sixty-first. It could still last with sixty. If if they lose another one, then it's obvious it falls. Right? No, it, it depends if everybody will vote for uh, a no confidence measure. Oh, would be the that's what I meant. To, right, right. That's what I meant to say. In other words, you can live without the sixty-first, but if you want to go ahead and 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 uh, and vote for the government to fall, then you need sixty-one. Or, or yeah, then you would need sixty-one, right, to to call for the you no confidence. Majority. Right, so you would need sixty-one votes. So if that would happen today, if there'd be a no confidence vote today, 
I'm assuming that there's a chance it would actually only end at 60, right? They may not get to the 61st. Well, people can, can abstain. Ah, I mean, there's right. parties that can abstain also. So, I mean, as much as people, as much as the headlines and the media likes to tell us that, you know, we're on the road to the fall of the Israeli government, it's, you know, not so fast. It's not exactly, it's not exactly true that this is inevitable. It's not true that it's inevitable, but as I said, I think historically it's shown that when most governments of Israel, the average length is two and a half years since Israel's creation, uh, recreation. And I think that, uh, you know, people are looking at it now and uh, it's it's a very tenuous coalition. And what kept them together were two things. One, BB, you know, it was an anti-BB coalition. And the second uh, is, uh, which also was an excuse for parties of the right to join. And, um, you know, people are looking at options. What if Likud is led by somebody else? Would they all, would Sire and others come back and have even commented to that, to that effect? Um, but also what, what kept them together is the knowledge that if they have to face an electorate, their parties, each of their parties could be subject to a significant diminution in strength. It's amazing that it took all this time to get to to Bibi because <laughs> a lot of people are blaming him for all of this. Uh, is, is there a way to um, accurately? Uh, uh, could, well, is, 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 what blame can we put on Bibi for all of this? Is he making deals uh, to get people to resign or get people to switch parties in order to because he sees it? He sees the the potential as you just described. Yamina may not even be part of the government. Uh, or may not even get enough mandates to uh, to have any type of impact if there'd be an election today. Uh, does is, is he reading the political scene, and we know he's a political genius, is he reading the political scene and realizing that if he could just convince a person or two to switch parties, uh, he, he has the potential to become prime minister again? He has been working to peel off members all the time since the election, and he's been putting public pressure on them and private uh, importunings for this entire time. So it's not new. BB, you know, is a political animal and very clever and uh, smart, one should say. And, and um, but I think that there's, it, it's not so much what BB says. I don't think BB can be blamed. Uh, obviously, he has worked to, to bring the government down. That's his responsibility as the opposition leader. Uh, but it was really, it's really up to the parties and the members in the coalition as to whether they stay or not. It's not BB that will drive them. Uh, there are a lot of questions about whether Netanyahu would run, would he, you know, under the impact of the trials. But the polls show him very strong. I think 38 seats really could, maybe more, and potential coalitions, even with Gantz, with others. Uh, all of this is speculative at this point, but there, there could be a lot of different options that come into play if, in fact, the government falls. I mean, some, some are, are actually guessing that because of the uh, spike in terror attacks that he's using that opportunity to uh, uh, to you know to to try to manipulate all of this because uh, one would suspect that as the as the safety and security of Israelis you know is in question the first person they're going to blame is the current prime minister so I mean but, you, but, yeah but remember that there was terrorism under during Netanyahu's tenure as well that uh, and and I think that the Israeli people don't want to see uh, politicians exploit the suffering uh, of the families and the individuals in that terror, you know, is uh, they can, there's a lot of things that they can criticize in terms of the preparation and in terms of 
the um, uh, are they doing all they can to prevent and the preventative measures is strong enough has enough money been allocated to the and the resources to the police and others to to do their job so those kind of questions always arise but I think that people you know right now they, the whole country suffers when when you have an attack like like last night and mourns with the families. Uh, and I don't think that exploiting it. Netanyahu has to make a decision based on the legal challenges he faces. And uh, I think he sees himself uh, as the, the prime minister and believes he'll overcome the, the legal uh, obstacles. But I don't know whether the Israeli people are ready to overlook it. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, also, the uh, just last point on this, the, the member of Knesset who resigned, the uh, member of Knesset, Silman, uh, I hope she, um, uh, you know, reads a little bit about recent political history in Israel, because if, in fact, Netanyahu convinced her to do this and promised her something down the road, uh, there, there, have been, there have been, you know, many times where he has made promises in the political atmosphere and has not kept that promise. And there are individuals who can attest to that. So, you know, you know, you'll, we know what politics is and we know what, you know, taking people's words, on, you know, in a political arena is difficult <laughs> and they're not always trustworthy. So I don't know. I guess she's taking a gamble. I mean, I, I know that there's a sincere you know, reason behind the whole resignation and all that. But um, but if, in fact, it was influenced by Netanyahu, people uh, who are uh, who are convinced by him uh, to make political moves. Uh, because he has, uh, you know, some benefit for them down the road, they should be careful because a lot of times those benefits never come through. That is true, and the and the public also holds people to account if they're going to appear to turmoil. They may hold the person who 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 brought that about to account at the polls too. I hear that. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world of web and AlchemySchool.com and the AlchemySchool Network and of course on the beloved NSN app. We're in our makeshift studio in New York City. I want to thank those who have been helping in our rebuilding process. Uh, tremendous outpouring from around the world and it's much appreciated to say the least. It's Erev Shabbos HaGadol, Erev Shabbos Parshas Mitzorah. Malcolm Holmline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman. Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Let's let's start with the uh, the Russia Ukraine piece with the United Nations. I mean, I know that the Human Rights Council. I don't know if it's a big deal or not. I don't even know if Russia cares uh, that they you know got a slap on the wrist at the United Nations. Uh, I mean, how would you, and, and now I, I assume what are we in five or six weeks already since since this invasion began? Um, how do you evaluate the reaction? I'm not, I'm not talking about now, you know, sending weapons. I'm talking about the political reaction of the United Nations and other countries to Russia's behavior um, uh, in light of what's happened over there. Well, it's certainly been an escalating reaction. Uh, a removal from the Security Council is a meaningless gesture in terms of impact on, on Russia. Nobody cares. I mean, we put down the Human Rights Council all the time. Right. Uh, they're just appointing a new rapporteur on the Middle East who has compared Israel to Nazi Germany. Uh, her, her approval is uh, is just coming up. Um, I think her name was Francesca Albanese, and uh, she has talked about this comparison of Palestinians uh, to, to the, the treatment of Palestinians, treatment of Jews under the Nazis. <laughs> and this is after she said that she has no biases in, in, his, in her... Um, application and the Human Rights Council mandates it, that it's not allowed to have people with uh, um, any kind of biases 
but she's talked about Israel's apartheid state, etc. So we see the constant violation of the rights of Israel's Human Rights Council. It's the only one singled out for its own special item, item seven on the agenda, in addition to the, I don't know, 20 resolutions a year attacking Israel. So we don't have much sympathy with Human Rights Council and its biases, but it's a, you know, it's a declaration, it's an additional statement, and each one of these is seen as an important step forward. The coalescence of NATO, the, um, the increasing sanctions that are, are being placed on, on individuals. I saw even the Foreign Minister Lavrov's uh, family members were, were, came under sanctions, uh, certainly Putin and his family. So the, the, um, the increasing pressure is, uh, is something that obviously is, is, is going to have an impact. It does have an impact on Russia itself. Russia, you know, then punishes itself, but cuts off Europe from its, uh, from gas or takes other steps that is, is uh, further damaging to it. Now, you know, they're insisting everybody buys gas with rubles. They've taken other measures internally to try and, uh, shore up the, the ruble and to, to, but people in the meantime are facing shortages in Russia. There's growing dissent in Russia about this. And, you know, when, even though many body bags are not going to come back because they supposedly incinerate the bodies of soldiers right there in, in the field, because that's one thing Russians don't tolerate is the is body bags coming back and, and big events. Eventually, they will know, and you've seen some high-ranking uh, people in Russia acknowledging the severe losses, that's the terms that they use now, uh, in in the battle in Ukraine. So the estimates go into the tens of thousands. I don't know the real number, but I think it's safe to say that it's it's very significant. So the the measures all are meant to be cumulative and to build pressure on on Russia. I think that with Putin and his personality, you have to give him a ladder. You have to get some way that he can withdraw with the dignity. So Zelensky has made proposals now that uh, seem to, to try and give some of the things that he wants. Seeing this thing drag on, some talk about years, some talk about many months. The, um, the uh, On the other hand, Russian officials talk about May, that they think that they can accomplish much more between now and May. Right now, I think that the, a lot of their accomplishments are being reversed. Uh, it is remarkable how the, the people have fought uh, often just uh, physically themselves. The, um, uh, the, so the, can, the when and where Putin will make a decision is unpredictable. But at some point, he's going to have to make the decision to find a way out. And we sh- should present him with some cover so that we end the fighting as soon as possible. Wow. Uh, I mean, th- that this has been said now for, you know, two, three weeks at this point. And even though <laughs> we continue to encourage the fact that he's got to, you know, get an out and, and, and figure out a way to, to bow out gracefully, it doesn't seem like that's happening. And it doesn't seem like he has any interest in doing that. And except for that, you know, except for a retreat or two, which, you know, the Ukraine takes as a, as a major victory, which I understand, it doesn't look like there's any... There's any long-term plan to accomplish what you're describing? The question of what the long-term plan is is one that a lot of people are debating, and now they've shifted to the east, they shift to the west then, and uh, they obviously are not, it appears now, going after Kiev. Um, 
at this time because the resistance there is very strong. And, you know, it'll be, even if they win, it'll be a guerrilla war that will continue. This is not going to stop uh, in, in a, unless there's a, some sort of an agreement and a real ceasefire and turning over, having Russian troops exposed in these areas is not going uh, to be a solution. And as you notice, that a lot of the troops defect. They don't fight. They, um, they even sell some of their weapons and, and uh, fuel. Uh, many say that they don't have food and they don't have um, supply lines, which has affected uh, parties in Europe before. If you don't prepare to make sure that you have a constant flow of not only uh, fuel, but also food and other things. So they go and ransack uh, in homes, etc. So the, the situation is, is very complicated for everybody to and to make a decision. And the question is, has been raised, is Putin getting the right information? Isn't he told the truth by the troops and the generals on on the field? He's lost uh, more than half a dozen of the top generals, uh, and there's no armed people to, to replace them. So this is, um, for, for Russia, this is no cakewalk, and they, they're able to survive right now. But the impact in terms of the absence of wheat and other things, both from Ukraine and Russia, is going to have a global impact. What do you make of the fact that people are returning to the Ukraine? Is it just a psychological thing that you know they're 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 assuming that that they're on the road to victory and that things will be rebuilt? Like I, it's it's amazing the number of people that are. I mean, I, I mean, I know there's a factor of reuniting with family. I get that, uh, but it's amazing. Well, that's how many- a big factor. They were smart. They kept the males eighteen to sixty couldn't leave, and many of the people don't like to be. Dislocated. There are people who probably would have left or did leave and don't want to go back. Um, some You saw the numbers that to Israel. Um, there are projections that are much higher. I don't think they're realistic, but uh, uh, some of them. Um, but the, to Germany, to other places, the, the numbers increase. We see even the Ukrainians coming in through Mexico. Um, so a lot of the population, I mean, so many millions of people, you will have a percentage that will go back. But I think the larger percentage is staying out. Some staying in Poland and uh, uh, elsewhere because they want to wait and see. Most in, in interviews on the border say that they plan to go back. They want to go back. And they left everything behind. Um, they know that the likelihood is that, aside from what the Russians destroy or or loot, that their their own neighbors were intact apartments when uh, people left. Uh, so they don't know even know what they're going back to, but. The uh, feeling of, first of all, national pride is strong, and the uh, drive to reunify with families very strong. And the uh, you know being a refugee is not is not exactly a desirable status for most people. Unbelievable. Um, <clears throat> is Israel in a in any different position than they were a few weeks ago? One of the first things that we you and I spoke about on the air was uh, the the delicate role that Israel is going to have in terms of what they say publicly or uh, withhold uh, in terms of uh, public statements, both regarding the Ukraine and Russia. Are they still in a very precarious position politically, or that's not as big a deal now? Well, it's less so because the the lineup has become so clear in Russia. I think it's not pressuring. They understand that people, that countries are under uh, pressure. They still have a lot of leverage on Israel, and we should remember that, that they're still in, in Syria, and uh, Assad is not going to drive them out. They, um, uh, so the, 
criticisms of Israel by Israel of Russia have escalated, that they have joined UN resolutions, including the Human Rights Council expulsion vote that took place this, uh, this, yesterday, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, it's um, So Israel's still in a somewhat delicate position. Uh, you saw that some of the statements uh, by Lieberman and others were more moderate, uh, by Lapid much tougher, and by the prime minister sort of in the middle. Uh, I think that Israel's role as a mediating party has diminished. Turkey is doing more of it, um, but it's, it's also not the most desirable position in because you never satisfy anybody when you're the guy in the middle. Yeah, that's true. That's why I always wonder about the different things that are coming out of uh, out of Jerusalem uh, in this regard. Like every time a statement is made, I'm wondering if, if, if they're taking a risk in terms of angering the other side. Um, we've spoken about China looking on and what their attitude likely is. What's the latest with Iran? They're looking on in all of this and they are thinking what? How do they benefit from it? How do they take advantage of it? How do they uh, tweak the West? How do they... Uh, and the Russians have tremendous influence within Tehran, and not only in the Vienna, in, in the talks, but also in the internal deliberations. So for Iran, obviously, it, seeing the West come together, seeing the sanctions uh, regime that's being imposed, uh, has to set off some alarm bells. On the other hand, they see that the West is completely distracted, that with the Nowruz, the New Year of the Iranians, um, this period where nobody works for two weeks, and so that they bought time, but the general frustration is, is increasing. You see administration officials saying that they don't think uh, that we're not close to a deal, and some have even said more than that. The... Um, uh, we'll have to see when they come back to, to Vienna if, we're, if they're going to be more sweeteners and more concessions, something that the parties in the, in the region, particularly this outrageous proposal that the IRGC be taken off the foreign terrorist organization list, which I think they're going to back off of right now because mm. you see General Milley came out and said he's against uh, the listing. Uh, we saw how much good it did when the Houthis were taken off the uh, foreign terrorist organization list that they escalated their violence. Although now we see that the president of Yemen resigned, who obviously was uh, in Yemen is a puppet of, of Iran in terms of the influence with the, the Houthis, that the, uh, both UAE and Saudi Arabia are giving a billion dollars to their central bank to stabilize the economy and a billion dollars more from Saudi Arabia for economic development. And the, um, uh, with the resignation of the president turning it over to a panel, um, maybe we'll see uh, a real diminution of the, of the violence in, in Yemen. Uh, but the Iranians uh, are now looking at uh, focusing on just on a few things. They're moving ahead constantly on their nuclear program. They, they look at the deal, which says not that they have to destroy their centrifuges. They can store four or 500, but they're able to produce new ones under the deal. They just uh, announced a new facility in Natanz. They, they are, um, and Russia, by the way, gets $10 billion to, in, in the deals that they signed with Iran to rebuild the, um, the Fordo facility. The uh, House Democrats, 20 of them yesterday, led by Josh Gottheimer and others, came out against the deal. Five or six of them held a press conference yesterday, which is, is significant. There were also some Democratic members of the Senate. And you remember Senator Menendez's speech. This is very important because you know, votes, uh, a switch of a few votes can determine uh, the outcome of things. But 
unfortunately, the, the uh, JCPOA may not be subject to congressional uh, congressional vote, although Congress is pressing for the right to review and to have a say in it, and the administration is examining the um, possibilities. If you look at what the, the number of attacks that have taken place, they significantly rose. I think, I think there's uh, um, uh, a couple hundred percent increase in the number of attacks against U.S. troops in Iraq. We see them being much more blatant that, uh, as opposed to doing what most people would anticipate, that while you're in negotiations, you step down things in order to get the concessions. The Iranians are sending messages by increasing the number uh, of attacks that, that are going on. So the internal uh, dissension from the agreement you see the how it's mobilized Israel, Greece, and Cyprus, expanding energy cooperation, both Ukraine war and Iran is fostering that, but even more so in terms of Israel's relationship with its uh, Arab neighbors is strongly influenced by uh, by the, the developments and the fear that the U.S. is not going to stand up to um, uh, Iran and that we are still offering uh, concessions to the Europeans, still talk that we're near a deal and a deal. The, this, the fact that you have people on the team itself, the American team, dissenting and leaving uh, Rob Malley's team because they didn't like the concessions um, that are going on. Iran has abilities, remember. They can always incite Hezbollah. They can incite Hamas. Uh, and the um, uh, statements if, if that people read what was said by the uh, Congress people who, who are dissenting right now, they talk about the sunset clauses, which means that it, you're just delaying at best. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we will turn over tens of billions of dollars to, to the Iranians. And, the, and, the, and the, the danger, if it's five years or six years or seven years, it doesn't matter. The, the fact is that we're not destroying their capacity to develop weapons. To, they have the missile delivery systems. They're weaponizing it. They're moving ahead on all fronts of the... Um, uh, of the nuclear program, which will settle for a race with Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Everybody else will want to go nuclear as well in this uh, thing. And we can expect not that Iran will become more complacent, but Iran will be more aggressive in its work. And now that they move the centrifuges to this underground facility in Isfahan, you know, we have no IAEA information. Their cameras information are not even recorded. So on every front, they're violating the understandings they have, and they're creating a new realities that will, will put them within reach in months, in weeks of a nuclear weapon. You know, Malcolm, tonight is Shabbos HaGadol, and uh, a week from tonight, the world will sit down, the Jewish world will sit down to the first Seder. There are a lot of themes at the Seder, many, many themes, but two we need to keep in mind. Um the, every, in every generation, the enemy tries to destroy us. Those are the two themes that I wanted to point out after this conversation. Uh, we're always in a precarious position, and uh, it's hard to believe that uh, the world is still standing with everything you just described. Uh, but in the end, even when the enemy is coming after us, it is uh, the one above that uh, that saves us uh, from uh, from despair and elimination. And I think it's two of the important themes we need to keep in mind. But you see how much there's a lot of good news. There's a lot of new breakthroughs, uh, whether it's in, in with the parties and countries in the region and in the Mediterranean area. More and more countries are reaching out to Israel. They want to associate with Israel. They want to be part of it. 
we do have bad news on the anti-Semitism front, but what you just quoted, we should remind people that it says omdim. It doesn't say omdim. It doesn't use the past tense. It uses the present tense to remind us that every generation faces it and that you learn from past generations how they did it going back to Mitzrayim, where Paro doesn't accuse the Jews of doing anything wrong. He says, we have to deal shrewdly with them because maybe they will do something, not because of a single accusation. And that's what to remind us uh, about the, the challenge we face today on anti-Semitism and on these other issues. If you look back to history, you see how our, our, our past generations dealt with them, and we learned from their successes and mistakes. And the, the question then is, why is it in every generation, I mean, there wasn't one? I think it was Yaakov Kamenetsky who asked the question, and he said, look at the next paragraph, Seyulamad, where it tells the story of Laban dealing with our forefather Yaakov, whose flocks were growing, his family was growing, and all the time that he thought it was relatively quiet, Laban was plotting against him. That the generations that don't see it blatantly, remember, you, nobody's exempt from this. Nobody, no generation has ever been. And therefore, we all have to be alert. We all have to look at ourselves. Why is it that every person has to look, start the Seder as if he or she came out of Egypt? To remind us, there's so many lessons, as you said, in the Haggadah. You know, the halacha, that when you read the Megillah, if you only look at it as an ancient document, you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing true of the Haggadah, that if you don't understand the contemporary messages, Every paragraph has a relevant message to us. And learning it that way, it'll make it much more meaningful and make it more relevant, especially to younger people, to learn it and to study it and to see that ultimately, Ken, thank you enough for that. Uh, wishing you a Chag Kasher V'Sameach. We'll reconvene after Pesach. Please, God, with a weekly update. Happy Matzahs to everyone. And, uh, we should only have a safe and God willing in Israel will be safe and People in Ukraine will get out okay, and God willing, the bloodshed will, everyone will stop. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Shabbos Agadol coming up. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time with the weekly update here at JM in the AM. And uh, I assume, just thinking it through for a second, next week's Erev Yontif, the week after that is uh, Shvi Shal Pesach. So I'm assuming that the next weekly update will be... Um, the following week after Pesach.